Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. The Houndsman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. If y'all purchase anything from Go Wild, make sure that you're using the Houndsman XP promo code. And that code is going to be HXP10. So when you go in there and you download your cart, when you come up to the bottom and it says promo code, add Houndsman XP to it. Today on the journey, we are headed to South Africa. And I know that Chris just done a podcast with Ivan Carter, and we're going into that same country in the same region. And we're going to talk in a different way about training dogs, how dogs help the conservation which they hit on a little bit but more importantly you know that we are able to help conservation and save other animals through the use of hounds so we're going to talk specifically about hounds but we are here with clinton sillers and clinton it is just an honor and a privilege to be able to have you on and sit down and talk i know that you and i have talked a couple times now and i mean it just gets better every time we talk so i'm really really excited to have you on with us today so how's things over your way 
Hi, Heath. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, much appreciated. Always nice talking to you and, um, you know, sharing some of the experiences that we that we have encountered and things that we've decided uh, upon. The trailing community is, is a small one. And, um, you know, I think with technology, it's, you know, it's always good to... To reach out to, to people of the same interests, you know, across the pond and, you know, everywhere else in the world and to, you know, just benchmark a bit and, and learn from one each other from each other. Yeah, which <clears throat> brings me I want I want to tell the listeners how we cross paths. And I don't think that some of the guys understand the um the amount of reach that Jeff Shetler has. Um that you know, Jeff is very, very, very good at what he does. Uh, he's got a lot of experience, a lot of years in, and he's trained a lot of dogs and a lot of people. And Jeff had had you on his podcast, and if you guys want to check it out, it's um, Man Tracker Radio. It's very, very good. And Jeff had reached out to me and said, "Hey, you know, I just talked to to Clinton. I'm gonna I'm gonna hook you guys up because you and him have a lot in common with the hounds." And of course, then one thing led to another, and here we are. But um, that's kind of how you and I cross paths. And just tell our listeners a little bit about you know how Jeff has helped or impacted what you do. All right. Um, you know, originally when we started getting into man trailing, there were you know a few old books around that you could order, and you know there was a lot of good information that you could use but you know the books were written really for bygone times for different situations and you know a lot of things has changed and these books were good I mean between you know the odd book that we could get our hands on and making things up ourselves and breaking things ourselves and you know trying to be self-taught um, you know, slowly but surely, <clears throat> as the internet became more prolific, uh, you know, people started to to come across like-minded people, and um, subsequently, uh, you know, I always say I don't really care who does what. I just look at how the dogs work, and I stumbled across a video of a dog trailing, and the person that was narrating the actual video was describing what was happening with that dog at that stage. And I looked at this and I thought this, you know, I actually called it BS. I thought you can't read so many things. You know, the dog is on or he's not and or he's trashing. And, you know, this person, this happened to be Jeff. He was describing things that was happening to to the scent and triangulation that the dog was doing. And I just, I'd never even heard or read or come across this type of, of high-level information anywhere. And I subsequently, to, to research Jeff, and I came across a wealth of information, and I realized that he'd actually been the author of many, many books and had a lot of learning material on, on YouTube. And the deeper I dug into this, um, you know, we all... We all know that the dog's behavior changes, you know, when it starts to give a proximity a, a, a proximity alert. 
and he scratched when you know, and started looking in how Jeff actually delves into the whole subject of proximity alerts and how to train it um, and how to keep tactical teams safe. I was just absolutely blown away. I mean, I realized that, you know, he's a national treasure. His level of experience and expertise is just way beyond anything I'd ever encountered or come across. And um, so that's where we, you know, these people immediately become a mentor to you because we do use dogs in anti-poaching situations. We've got law enforcement, we've got private security companies, and um, you know, dogs are, are quite an integral part. And by getting to understand the skill sets of people like Jeff and being able to learn, even if it is through books and through communication, um, you know, he's, he's mentored many, many people that he's never seen or met before in his life, unbeknownst to him. You know, I said to him on the podcast the other day, you know, he has no idea how many dog-related training issues I've had over the years that he's actually fixed and remedied um, just simply by, by sharing his knowledge and self Basically how, how I stumbled across Jeff um he is he's very revered, you know, right if, everywhere that you come, if people are serious about trailing, um, you know, they they know Jeff and um, you know, I think he's he's blazed a trail that that has definitely changed the game and the name of man trailing probably indefinitely. Um so yeah, I'm very privileged to have um you know been able to be in recipient of his knowledge and um you know the fact that i can i can just send him a message and say jeff i need a bit of assistance and within an hour or two you know he gets back to you and he heavily helps mm-hmm. yeah basically how how my paths cross with jeff so to speak yeah yeah i i think that's one thing that <clears throat> i can say throughout my my law enforcement career has helped me with my my training of, you know, of the police canines is being able to connect with people as Jeff. Um, and I've got a whole bunch of other people that have helped me and that, like you said, I can send them a text or phone call and say, Hey, I've got this problem. Not really sure. I've tried X, Y, and Z. It's not working. Do you have a, another option? And that has helped me become a student of learning it's opened my eyes that you continually learn. Um, and it's also helped me advance, um, with some of the, with what I do with dogs. And I mean, it's been invaluable to me and in my, and especially in my career, um, which is again, Jeff's, you know, Jeff's one of those people we connected, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. And, you know, it's like you said, he, he probably didn't even know at first that he was, changing our canine group um without even being here but he did and now that we've become you know yeah we've become friends but so clint enough with that um tell tell us a little bit about yourself you know where you're from what you do um kind of your background and how you got in you know i know like through our conversations you know i know what what's going on on your side of the pond but Tell let's just tell the listeners so we can kind of get dive into what we really want to talk about. 
Right, just very briefly, um, I have been in the dog industry formally probably for the last 12 years, um, but I've always been a dog fanatic, you know, just self-taught mucking around with dogs as a kid. And, um, you know, I got in, I got fascinated by the, the art of falconry when I was a youngster and um, I bought myself I took my savings as a, as a schoolboy and I imported a a book from Philip Blazier from the UK and um, basically taught myself how to do falconry out of a book and then obviously I needed a pointer and uh, you know I used to go driving around in a BMX with with a falcon on the handlebar and two <laughs> pointers and toe and, and and we used to just have a good time there was still pre-telemetry as well and then the telemetry started to become available so I've always Enjoyed dogs. And then from there, um, we had to do national service. So I had to go and do um, two years of army. And then from there, coming back, um, obviously, I needed employment. And the area that I was living at that stage, the only real employer was, was the mines. The gold industry was booming. South Africa was the largest producer of, of gold in the world. So I went and got myself a day job, and um, I kept that up for 20-odd years. But, you know, in the interim, it allowed me to get out with dogs. I started getting into some of the pointy breeds and got myself a German Shepherd and did a little bit of Schutzhund, and I enjoyed the, the bite work side of it a lot. Um, the obedience side, I get but bored with obedience, to be quite honest. Uh, even although I'll do obedience with dogs, it's not something that brings me great pleasure. And um, then from there, the the tracking side, you know, the the sport, the sport tracking to me was very, very flawed. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why a dog would, you know, really not enjoy tracking. You know, because of the amount of compulsion you'd have to put on the dog, you'd have to get the tail carriage down. And, um, you know, I had a look at this and I thought to myself, no, I don't know if this is going to work for me. And then that's basically where I started messing around a bit, you know, trying to come up with my own ideas of tracking. And, um, you know, from there, I eventually registered a security company and I registered a training center and I got myself um, certified and qualified, and I then left the mines and I became, well, I didn't really, you have to be a security company registered to have a training center, but I just ran the training center side of things where we would then train and certify handlers for predominantly the security industry. And then from there, I slowly started growing my security company where we would then have guys predominantly dog handlers you know either looking after you know national key points like um, diamond mines or water purification works and that kind of stuff and um, you know then we started from there putting down dog handlers in farming areas our rural farm farming areas are riddled with crime there's quite a lot of crime going on. And then we got into the anti-poaching side because the, the everything pretty much goes hand hand in hand. You know, the guys that are poaching are the guys that are breaking and stealing and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so then we got into that. And um, 
yeah, I grew, I grew, we grew the numbers of the company quite large. And then I found myself in a situation where I no longer enjoyed it anymore um, because it was just, you know, it became unmanageable. And, you know, your, your, your dog handlers, it's, it's not a profession over here that is either well-paid or respected. So people would become a dog handler here because there's nothing else. And, you know, it's a position. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've started getting a bit disillusioned by, you know, you'd have a few really good guys, but, you know, you'd have all of these other guys that are mucking around and you get there and the dog hasn't been groomed or he hasn't even got any water for the dog. And then you have to discipline him and then the next guy comes. And, um, you know, so I just I shut it down and I just I kept the best guys. And what we did with them is we started putting vehicles down where we had reaction teams so you'd have a reaction officer that is highly skilled and there's he's got a dog to a dog component to what he does and these dogs are predominantly um trailing and apprehension dogs and then from there we had the, the other guys that were worth their salt we put into small anti-poaching units where they would go and do you know tracking and observation on on farms try and pick up movements and removing of snares and that kind of stuff. So that's basically where we're at now. And um, the the training side for me is still very, very appealing. I'm actually probably training more now than I've ever trained. Um, you know, I'm completely, completely hands-on on the training side because that's where the the most personal growth is for me. Um, you know, we we forever students. And the more we know, the more we realize how little we know. And, um, you know, for me, you know, every dog is a, is, a, is a learning opportunity. And, you know, every time you get to the point where you know, things are going really well, the next dog comes past and humbles you and you realize, okay, I don't really, <laughs> I haven't, I, I, I haven't got this down. You know, I thought, I thought I had this, but I, I haven't got this. So, um, and it's nice because you you learn. It's different breeds of dogs. It's different ages of dogs. Um, dogs with different drive levels. Dogs with different capabilities. And you actually learn that you have to adapt to the dog. You can't adapt the dog to your program. You know, the dog is the program. You need to change the way. You need to make an evaluation of this dog and decide what's going to make this dog tick. How are we going to get this dog to move forward? And how are we going to get him to do it consistently? And um, so the training is, is where I'm at. It's not, um, you know, something I can see myself giving up on easily. I enjoy it. Um, it, it. It entails me dealing less with people. You know, if I have to choose between dogs and, and people, dogs <laughs> yeah. to second and third. So it allows me to, you know, it's nice and flexible. If the weather's good, I can go and work a bunch of dogs. If it's hot, I can stand over and I can go do something else. Mm. And um, it's very, very satisfying when it goes right. And at the same time, it's very, very humbling when it goes wrong. You know, it really, it, it makes you dig in deep and say, all right, I've got to, you know, I'm a person that I don't like to be beat. You know, if the dog is, the dog beats me that night, I'm lying awake staring <clears> at, the, at the ceiling and think, what am I going to do the next day? You know, because mm -hmm. you've, you've won the round, but you haven't won the war yet. So, 
Um, so that's where we're at. We're trying to get into more and more into the wildlife conservation side of things, which mm-hmm. would also predominantly be training dogs up to go and do be it pangolin research or, um, you know, scat dogs, you know, finding population densities of, of certain species. And um, so it's more on the wildlife side, on the conservation side, and predominantly training. You know, I would like to to train people up. And um, I'm a firm believer if, if if you train someone up, there needs to be a care maintenance plan. Yep. Because, you know, the guys are so overwhelmed by the mountain of information that you're throwing at them and they're keen and they've learned a lot. And then they find themselves out there and two or three weeks later, a parameter changes somewhere and they run into trouble and they're too embarrassed to say, listen, you know, I, I'm stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, so we we try and actually hold these guys' hands a bit initially, and then just popping in and out, and then just doing an evaluation. So, right, you've dropped a few catches here, or what you're doing here is is counterproductive, or everything is right, but it's not working as it should. Let's try something else. You know, so the idea is to get people to be successful, um, because I see a lot of people. You know, getting into the canine industry and then when they get out there, you know, there's so many challenges and they run into a wall and they, they get defeated and they throw in the towel. And it's not so much that they're doing things wrong. It's just that it's it's not an easy industry to get into. And there's so <coughs> many things that can and, and will invariably go wrong. Mm-hmm. You sometimes just need that hand on your shoulder to say, just, you know, breathe in deeply, count to 10. And, you know, let's let's try this. You know, it's much easier as an outsider to not get emotional with, with training of dogs than it is when you're actually in there in the heat of the moment and you're trying your darndest and the dog just isn't getting. Right. I want to I want to back up real quick because you hit on a couple of things through that that um, block there. Uh, so you said that you started with falconry. So one of our one of our podcast partners, Chad Reynolds, um, he uses um, he uses birds in in his hunting, um, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. And you had talked about um, in with Jeff. You had talked. I want you to talk a little bit about the training of a bird because you just you can't make that thing do anything they don't want to do. Um, and one of the things that we need to hit on is your company is Tactical Canine Africa. That that's the company. That's the the um, training facility that you run. That's correct. So talk about the birds a little bit, and then you know something that you know you hit on it there. But what you and I talked, I thought it was like um, it was kind of like shocking to me that when uh, you worked in the mine, I want you to more elaborate more for for us because you know. Sometimes I think as Americans, we forget what the rest of the world's like. And I don't know that I could work in the conditions that you were working in. <laughs> All right. Well, the the mines was basically, you know, it, uh, I went, I finished school, I matriculated, which was basically our high school level. And the idea was to go and study uh, nature conservation at, at, at the university, of which I then got allowance. Um, we 
then had to, you know, we had forcibly had to go to to the army at that stage for two years. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to school a bit early, so I finished at um, the ripe old age of 17. So I can, I'll never forget that I was old enough to go to war, but I had a, I, had, I needed to get a letter of permission from my from my mother, from my mom to go. So she had to sign a consent form because I wasn't 18 yet for me to go off to the army. So I went off to the army. There was two years, came and went. And um, coming back from there, uh, you know, my mom was a single parent and, you know, she used to hold down two jobs to try and take care of me and my sister. And, um, you know, at that stage, the, you know, the, the tuitions and stuff for university was, was just not really manageable. So, you know, obviously plan B was to get a job. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the biggest employee employer was, was the gold mines. Mm -hmm. And they were employing, you know, they were expanding tremendously. So I went and I went for an interview and it was actually quite funny because everyone around me, um, came from, you know, they came from a mining background. And, you know, whilst they were having these interviews, um, you know, I always make a joke. These guys were just mining, you know, literally mining the building out from underneath the interviewer. And, um, you know, I got there and it was, uh, you know, Mr. Donald McLeod. And he asked me a bit about my history and why I was there. I said I needed employment. And he said to me, well, what do you know about mining? And I said to him, well, absolutely nothing. I know it's, it's down below and I know it's gold and that's it. And he said to me, but all of these other guys have a lot more knowledge than you. And I said, yeah, but I'm here to be taught. You know, that's why I'm here. This is obviously a training center because you go for training for quite a time and then you go underground. So long story short, we got, got the employment and then went for an underground visit. And uh, our instructor at that time, Benny Nelson, uh, he didn't sugarcoat it. He took us to, you know, South Africa at that stage had the deepest gold mine in the world. You know, we went down 3,500 meters, and which is probably like 12,000 feet. And he took us to all the places and it was hot and it was gringy. And you know, I was literally dying of the heat. I'd never been so hot in, the, in my life. And, you know, the sweat was filling up in my gumboots. And when when we got out from underground, I dropped to my knees and I kissed the ground and I thanked <laughs> the Lord. And I said, never, never, never again. And uh, five days later, I was on the payroll and, you know, I was, um, you know, I was underground. And what, the, what they did is you... You start off right at the bottom. So you do every job you go and do for, for a few months. So if it, if it means that you're, a, you know, you're operating a shovel, then you load shovel for a few months and then you're building timber supports. Um, you know, then you're operating a winch. So there's a whole, um, almost like an artisan pro program that you go through mm -hmm. that takes about two years before you physically start mining. So, but it's a, it's like anything else, you know, money is the root of all evil because mm -hmm. at some stage you get yourself, a, you get yourself a house and you get yourself a car. And so you start, you know, incurring debt. And the only way you can service that is by, you know, continuing to work. Yep. And, um, and I, I learned a hell of a lot. So I learned to, to work with people of different walks of life altogether, you know, from completely unskilled, uneducated to, to highly skilled, um, you know, you know, it was very interesting, and, you know, different nationalities because we were having people from as far as Malawi and, and Mozambique coming over for, for work. 
so it was a good, you know, it was good. The mines were good to me. You know, it was hard. It was tough. Um, I think I grew up pretty quickly. But um, what was the yeah, what was, was the reason? It was job. What was the reason you left? That's what I was trying to hit on. Like, the, what was the reason that right. you said, um, yeah? Um, um, and then the next wave that hit us after that was, and this was the big one, is we were inundated by what they call the Zamazamas. We started getting all these illegal miners infiltrating the gold mines, and it became a whole cartel. These guys were walking around with AK-47s. Um, they would hijack your equipment. They would steal your explosives. Um, you know, they would shoot shoot you on sight if you stumbled across them, and you know, in the middle of the night, walking around a corner. And you know, I'd been I'd been bombed twice. You know, I lost a bit of hearing in my left ear, which thankfully has, has, has come back over the years. And it just became. It got to a point where you know everything I was doing was no longer mining related. And, um, you know, you start losing a lot of your interest in in doing, you know, you get up in the morning, you think to yourself, you know, what crap is waiting for me today? And then your night shift comes out and they said, well, they couldn't clean anything because the all the water hoses were, were stolen during the night and they've sabotaged your air manifolds. Um, then you have to have a, a meeting with your production manager and you need to try and understand, you know, he needs to understand why your production is down. And he, you know, he doesn't want to listen to your excuses because he's paying you proper money to make sure that everything gets done. Um, so it started losing a bit of its bit of its flavor. And at the same time, you know, I was I was slowly, you know, getting my my little business together with the dogs and I'd slowly gotten a bit of a farming, you know, my wife built up a uh, a, a very successful farming business, you know, on the sideline. Every time there was a bit of money, we'd buy a few sheep and a few goats, and a few head of cattle, and mm-hmm. you know, she was taking care of that. And just got to the point where, you know, it started getting it started getting difficult getting up in the mornings. You know, you had I had to drag myself to the car, <laughs> and um, you know, then then one morning I'll I'll never forget. You know, I used to have to wake up. Um, I used to. Have, I was at work quarter to five, so I had to work. I had to wake up uh, half past three in the mornings to get to work. And the one morning, my wife woke up and she said, that, "You know, wake up! You'd overslept. It was like almost six o'clock." And I said to her, "I'm not going to work today." And she said, "Are oh, you off?" I said, "Yeah, I'm off." She said, "Well, that's fantastic. Let's go do something." So we went to town and. I had a bit of a breakfast and, you know, sat and drank a milkshake and just walked around. It was all good. And then the next morning, you know, she shook me up again and said, you, you know, you've overslept. And I said, no, I'm off today. And the third morning, she said to me, listen, what's going on here? And I said to her, I'd actually resigned. And she, she means, what do you mean you've resigned? I said, oh, I've resigned. I resigned a month ago and I've worked my notice. And um, she said, no, you haven't resigned. You're unemployed. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I, I, either way, I, I'm unemployed, resigned, call it what you want. And she said to me, but what are you going to do? I said, well, we'll, 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 we'll start, you know, we'll start a business with dogs. You know, I, it's something I want to do. It's something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, we've built up a bit of a skill set and we've subsequently trained up a few dogs. And, and what initially happened is, um, you know, a lot of companies were, 
well, a big company was sending me their work, and um, you know they would pay me to to you know do a few trailing dogs, etc. And but they were invoicing the government big money, and um, you know while while this was you know a bit of a cash cash inflow coming in, you know I then got the the training centre sorted out, and we got ourselves to the point where where we could start doing our own thing. So yeah, this has been a long way. Um, probably not the most normal way where people go and they, they then go and become dog handlers and police and you know you know grow that way. So mine is my path has been a bit of a, a bit of a long one, but the the desire and passion for dogs has just you know always been there. And um, you know coming back to the falconry side is I think it's it's taught me that um, you know firstly you you can't really coerce you know, falcon too much, you can control its weight. So that doesn't prevent it from flying off after it's killed something. Um, you know, it used to, there still needs to be enough of a relationship that when you approach that bird and a kill, that you can actually pick it up and feed it up um, or, or take the the rest of the kill away and put it up and let it hunt again. You know, as long as that falcon feels that it's reciprocal and it's a team effort, uh, you know, it's fine. The moment it feels cheated, um, you know, it's just gone. You know, it doesn't have to stay around. It can go and hunt itself, and it can, you know, be self-sufficient. So that I think that has taught me, you know, that you you have to find a bit of a, you know, the animal needs to want to do what you want to do. So you need to set that dog up to the point where it's doing what you what, what you want it to do, but it's enjoying doing it. You know, and you know when we started biting dogs, uh, you know, people used to come and have a look at my dogs and say, but you're doing this all wrong because the, you know, I used to always joke, I used to say, I, I, raise, I raise my pups for the devil. Um, <clears throat> my young dogs have got very little boundaries. There's very little discipline put into them. They're just wild, hectic, crazy pups. You know, they run around, latch onto everything. And um, it's just, just no, you know, there's just no structure to the dogs. I mean, you know, from they are slowly start putting on the brakes but I make sure that the dogs are completely fearless and that they're not scared of anything strange, anything new, surfaces. You know, they'll rush up to anyone, go and greet anyone, jump over everyone. And, um, you know, from there, we just slowly, as, as the dogs mature, I just slowly start putting on a bit of a break there, a little bit of structure here. Um, but we don't put a lot of compulsion into the young dogs because I find sometimes if you've taken it out, you have a hell of a time putting it back in again. And, um, you know, I always ask myself, what is the core function of this dog? And if it's a dog that needs to be to do detection, then that to me is the most important in terms of the hunt drive, the desire to work. Not not how, how well that dog heals or how perfect his sit is. Um, you know, it's the same as a bite dog. You know, if he doesn't have the cleanest out, but he's forward and he's solid and he's calm in a bite you know and he'll take a bite anywhere you give it to him the the fact that he's maybe a little bit lazy on the out is is the least of my problems but if i've got a dog that that's you know spits the decoy out but he there's there's no power or no grip in the front and he's not really committing to the bite you know to me that's a much bigger problem and um you know it's the same i, I don't know exactly your side but i, I think you guys are pretty much doing it 
the same way in the sense that, you know, we we don't like a dog that outs on the bite. Um, a dog that, that spits somebody out to me is a bit of a liability. I, I want him to stay on there until everything is under control and everyone is where they should be and, you know, I can pop him off from there. I don't like a dog anticipating an out while he's in a fight. And I don't want a dog when he pops off and there's, you know, people next to him and wants to redirect that that desire to bite. So you know, we try and keep the dogs in a high state of arousal. You know, when they're in it, they're in it to win it. And um, the trailing with the dogs is the same. When that dog gets an opportunity, it's something that he he must live for, you know, when he knows he's going to trail now, nothing else must be more important than that trail. He, he needs to really, you know, put himself into that trail. And, um, you know, I find that if, if you ask yourself what, what what is the core purpose of that dog and you actually focus on that more than anything else, you can always, you can always fix the other things around their core as you move on. But I think sometimes I've seen people get so caught up in obedience that there's no dog left for them to work beyond that. Um, they've just put way too much compulsion on the dog. The dog was too young. It was too much. It was too too much of everything. And, um, and, and people, you know, have the best intentions. But, you know, they've just taken it beyond the point where the dog has lost interest. And now now you want to trial with that dog, and that dog needs reassurance from the handler the whole time. He cannot be a leader. He cannot think for himself. He cannot make decisions. Every time he's faced with a challenge, he looks at the handler, and the handler needs to solve that challenge. Now go put that dog on a blind trail, and um, you've got a completely defeated team. And then the handler becomes stressed and it goes down least towards the dog. And the dog was stressed to start off with. Um, so, yeah, we, we we do things a bit differently. Um, I, I like to work with the natural desires of the dogs. I like, I like a puppy to be a puppy. I, I never try to see how far I can get a puppy in terms of you know, obedience or bite work. Uh, we play We play with the dogs when they start eating. We stop playing. Um, might be a good time to go over to trailing from there. Uh, we keep everything light. We keep everything fun. And I've actually picked up some of the really big sport trainers, you know, the guys that are really, really been in it for a long time. I see they're doing the same with the young dogs. There is not... They're not pushing these young dogs, you know, beyond a point where, you know, they can't recover. Mm-hmm. They're allowing these dogs to develop into a role which they've paved the way for them. Um, they've got a schedule that they're running on. And, you know, for me, I think that's the way. And, and for some dogs, it's fast. And for other dogs, it takes forever. And, um you know, this is the nice thing when you start working multiple dogs, you realize that the dog dictates the schedule. You know, you can only do so much and beyond that, you, you're not going to be adding any value anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. And I want to kind of switch gears just a, a tad. So um, can you go over, like, so I know that you started with the pointier dogs and then you made a transition into the hounds. What? Clinton, walk walk us through that process and why you did what you did, and then we'll get into the background of some of the hounds that you're running. The journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. 
This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to worksowell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey. All right. Um, I started off with the, well, you had pointy-eared breeds. I had, a, I had a Sable German Shepherd that just turned out to be an absolutely phenomenal dog. He could do everything, but not just could he do everything, he was, he was just a phenomenal tracking dog. You know, he was absolutely in a class of his own. And, um, you know, at some stage I thought to myself, well, you know, I should, you know, I should try incorporating hounds as well. I mean, hounds are obviously bred for trailing. And I got hold of some bloodhounds. And they trailed well enough. I just, I just didn't have, have the same affinity for them. I think it was like maybe a combination of um, these specific hounds were very, very scrappy. You know, they would, you know, you couldn't feed them if there was, you know, another dog within ten yards of them. They'd want mm. to climb into them. So they're very, very, very noisy. They, they, they had a they had a very specific odor to them. Um, they were not really easy to live with, and they would go from, you know, the correct trail. They would go onto other trails very seamless. I mean, you would literally half the time not know that they're taking you on a ghost trail. So I mucked around with them a bit. I was inexperienced. I had no hound background back then. I then got a few. It's a, it's a, it's a cross that's been running since the 70s in South Africa where they actually cross Dobermans and Bloodhounds and then go back to the Bloodhounds so that you have a 75% Bloodhound. It's just a leaner, cleaner um, uh, Bloodhound. Mm -hmm. They're very nice. Yeah. I then went over to them and I got, I had one or two that really worked very, very nicely and I used them for a while. And then I went, just went back to the to the shepherds, and the main reason for that is initially, um, you know, these are things that I call a learning process. You know, I thought it doesn't make sense to have just a trailing dog. You want a trailing dog with a biting aspect at the end for apprehensions. So the pointy-eared breeds made a lot of sense. So we went back there, and, um, you know, it worked. We got them up and running, and we did it for a while. And we were running running a lot of trails uh, very much in, 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 in the bush, you know, so when you pick up a trail, chances of there being other contamination was, was very rare. And, you know, I realized that the biting component was overrated. You know, it's not something that we actually used a lot, but it was there. And we continued down that path. And then the, the conditions under which we, we were working started to change. We started to, to run trails where, you know, the trails would start off fairly uncontaminated and then they would go into 
village and compound type areas. And, and what we then found was over and above the fact that we have not trained the dogs properly to be sense specific, um, but what we also found is that the biting dogs would be very easily distracted by people approaching them, mm-hmm. um, coming past on bicycles. They would, they would, they'd want to get paid. And, um, you know, this meant that we could only trail to a certain point without getting ourselves in trouble. We would get within maybe the last 200 yards of where the guys have actually ended up, but we, could, we couldn't make arrests. So and, let, um, let me explain that real yeah. quick to our listeners. So what you're saying is, and I, I mean, I see this because I work this con- continuously, is the dog goes from completely using his nose to he goes visual because he's overstimulated and then he takes yeah. his he just does a self-reward like i'm done exactly. there's too much going on i'm grabbing the first person that comes along and we're done exactly wants to get picked <laughs> yeah yeah so go ahead sorry to interrupt you but i just thought that was important to add in yeah. wonderful so then we started taking pointy-eared breeds Specifically, those that would be, let's say, a very good detection candidate, very, very high drive, but you know, not particularly aggressive. And we started putting trails on those dogs, and that worked very well. Um, we now had dogs that you know would really fixate on a trail. We started working more and more on contamination. We started working more on being, dogs being sense specific, you know, right off the bat. And now suddenly things were working out really, really well. We could have a second dog that has a bit of a trailing and biking component as backup dog. And that was basically where we had evolved to. And it was something that suited the modus operandi under the conditions which we were working extremely well. And um, right about that stage when I was comfortable with where I was at and how things were working, uh, I started rethinking the whole hound situation again because I'd spoken to uh, um, to, to Tienes Buerta, which is mm-hmm. you know probably the the biggest houndsman we've had you know in 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 our country probably forever in terms of being really really dedicated to to the art of hounds and dedicated to his breeding program. And, you know, I spoke to him and he actually called me. He was getting into falconry and, you know, I wanted to know could help him and, you know, mentoring a bit. And we were talking. And he said, listen, when are you getting a self-proper hound? And I said, no, well, I have. I had blood hounds. And he said, no, man, when are you getting yourself a proper hound? And I said, okay. And he said to me that... Um, you know, I need to relook hounds, but you know, I mustn't go and get myself a high speed. I need, I need something that will plod along and happily just straddle it, straddle a trail, and you know, just get going. And um, you know, so he planted the seed again, and you know, I started questioning the the way I trained the hounds originally. You know, with the knowledge I had at that stage, and I thought to myself, well, I probably you know, didn't have the greatest of skill set in all honesty when, when we started with hounds. So I started looking at hounds and, and the main thing that, you know, kept on coming back was the hounds could definitely go a lot longer and a lot harder than what the pointy ear breed 
I, you know, I've seen it over and over. If you look at the guys, um, running hounds, you know, if you if you look at their Garmin, you'll have a hound that has done 30 kilometers, and its average average speed was 11 kilometers an hour. Uh, you know, and you know how hot it is, and, and you think just well. You've got the nose. They, the, the dogs are more predisposed to work colder trails. Um, you don't have to worry about aggression issues. They're not going to, you know, redirect when they see visual stimulus. Um, so then I, I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I should, I should revisit the whole idea about hounds. And right about then, I also started. Scratching around a bit to see who is using hounds in in man trailing. Obviously, there's a lot of people, you know, specifically on, on the bloodhound side, um, and they were doing very, very well. And I've got a lot of respect for a bloodhound. I just have very little inclination, you know, to be dragged behind one all day. And um, you know, around about then, I stumbled. I stumbled across a video clip where I saw a hound working, but it was it was just it was just something of beauty. You know, it was just, this, this dog was just excited and it was doing hard surface tracking. And the next thing, lo and behold, this dog is indicating micro articles. I mean, half the size of a pinky nail. And I thought to myself, come on, this, this can't be, you know, to get a hound to be this precise and to walk, work through all of this. So then I, you know, I started, you know, shopping around and I found out who, who the breeder and the trainer was, and I realized that he's actually a highly, highly a skilled houndsman and uh, a man trailer. And, and I spoke to him. His, his name is, is Miguel Carbajal, very, very interesting gentleman. He doesn't speak English, but, I mean, fortunately today you can just send a text and translate it. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, one thing grew to another, and he said to me, listen, get yourself a hound and... Um, um, this I'm going to send you uh, a book. This this is how we start our hounds, and you know just try it. You know th- he's got a specific method that he gets the hounds really really wedded on on odor, and he gets you know so that they're much less inclined to you know get, get you know excited about other odors and other scents and that kind of stuff. And, you know, so the nice thing is I knew I could go back to Tunis. It was now a few years later. Um, since passed tragically in, in a hunting incident. But the, the nice thing is, um, you know, his wife actually still kept the whole hound program up and running. She still had um, people going out hunting the hounds. She was still producing the hounds. And... Um, I contacted her and she said to me, you know, her dogs don't really go out to anyone that's not hunting, specifically big cats and stuff. And, you know, what do I want to do with a dog? I said to her, well, I had this conversation with Tians many years ago. And she said to me, he'd actually said to her that, you know, when, when he has the right dog, he was actually, you know, he wanted to gift me with a right dog for, for man trailing. And, you know, subsequently she did. Um, you know, she was coming down to Johannesburg. She asked if I could meet her. And, um, you know, she brought out a dog there and she said, listen, if he works, he works. If he doesn't, you know, just bring him back. But give him a try. He's, you know, very well bred. 
It's a dog with a very, very cold nose. And, um, you know, subsequently, you know, we've, we've started trailing and I've, I've actually got a, quite a few dogs that I've, you know, put on exactly the same starting program, so to speak. And they're all doing very, very well. It's still with hounds. It's always still a lot of work ahead. Um, you know, because especially, you know, we we have oh, the other day we, he was trailing beautifully, and I had a whole troop of vervet baboons explode out of the tree and run, you know, run in front of the hound. Very difficult, you know, for a dog to ignore those type of things when he's seven months old, and um, you know, these are you know these things happen, but that's why we we train where we where we trail because you know once you get the dogs totally wedded then that's not an issue anymore. So yeah, that's basically where the hounds, I definitely won't call myself a houndsman. I'm still very inexperienced when it comes to hounds, but what I can tell you is that when it comes to trailing, um, they are on a class of their own. You know, it won't take anything away from the point your breeds, you know, especially in terms of, of how broad scope you can use them for. But um, I find that the feet on the hounds are fantastic. Um, I'm never battling with feet. Uh, they look hot and winded, but they just don't stop. You know, they can just keep on going. Um, we really don't have any real issues with, with the heat. Um, they get hot and they get exhausted, but they just keep on working. Whereas with the pointy-ear breeds, when they get hot, you've got to stop. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to run into <clears throat> trouble very, very quickly. There's a hound that's look pretty windy, will still give you a bit, you know, before he, he really runs runs himself into trouble. And I just love the feet. I love the feet on the hounds. Um, I love the fact that, um, you know, they, they live for what they do. And, um, you know, the... The dream is to get the hounds as excited on man as what they are on their natural quarry. Um, you know, that, that to me would be the, the ultimate dream. If I can get the same excitement level out of a hound, if I put him on a man trail as I would if I put him on anything else, then I think we would have arrived in terms of conditioning and training and everything else. Because when you look at Miguel's dogs, you hardly know if that dog is on man or if it's on animal. Um, if you look at the excitement, uh -huh. you know, those dogs are absolutely pumping to get onto that trail. And it's obviously got, got to do with, you know, just the way he trains. He, he is absolutely phenomenal at what he does. And he's been doing it for a very, very long time and he's very, very meticulous. But at the very least, we, we're working towards it. Our dogs are, are loving what they're doing um, for the best part, ignoring <clears throat> everything else. Um, I'm also, because I am fairly inexperienced with pounds, I'm not, you know, pushing things too much. You know, every so often, you know, we just basically stay where we are and we just do a bit of repetition and we just solidify some of the foundations again. Sometimes we go back three or four steps. I find the easiest, you know, I've, I've never found going back has ever hindered anything. Um, I think sometimes we are too, too stubborn to go back, not a step. Sometimes you need to go back to the start um, just to go and make sure that you solidify one of the blocks that you might be running into trouble. If you have a dog that's is starting to skip the articles in the end, 
you know, you need to put something in place so that you can fix that. You, you know, you can't be worrying about going further and further ahead if, if your start isn't solidified because the start is the most important mm-hmm. part of the entire trial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is why, um, you know, Jeff, for instance, you know, Jeff is probably the guy that can compartmentalize things the best I've ever seen. He can break things down into beautiful bite-sized chunks and say, right, this is how you're going to do it. This is where you're going to start. And this is why it's important having, having these guys out there sharing information so that the rest of us can grow. It definitely takes a village to, you know, to get to these get to these points. Um, you know, if, if you have someone that can help you with these things, it just distracts your own growth and your own progression. And, um, you know, we all bring something to the, to the table. Every time I have students, I sometimes look at something and I'll say to someone, but why are you doing it that way? And, you know, they're like all, all apologetic. And I'm not, I'm not saying that apologize i just want to know why you're doing like doing it that way because it's it's brilliant so yeah it's, it's interesting I, I think it's you know as long as one is open to learning i, I think it just never stops yeah and i want to go back just a, a bit again I'm, I'm kind of backtracking on you um the bloodhounds that i see are more show quality or show bred. They've got a really thick skin, a lot of droopy skin through their eyes and their nose and on their flaws. And like, that's just not conducive to what we want to accomplish. The dogs are too heavy. They get too hot. And like you said, they, you can't hardly handle a hundred pound bloodhound pulling you through the country. And then the second thing I wanted you to hit back, go back on and touch on is for our listeners, I think it's so interesting. I want you to talk about Tennis's bloodline and where it started, what he added and took away to get to where you're at today. Right. I I would hardly be qualified to to discuss his work because it's, you know, so vast and he's, you know, put so much time, effort and love and dedication into it. But just in a rough summary. Um, he started off with predominantly, I think it was Smoky River uh, Blue Ticks. Mm-hmm. He imported a bunch of dogs just to give the viewers or listeners a, a bit of background. Tennis is the, the biggest hunter of large predators, predominantly lion led uh, on the continent. For 30 years, he was hunting. 300 days out of the year. Um, and he just hunts big cats. That's what he specializes in. And he had these blue ticks. Um, he'd obviously selected them over the years. They worked extremely well for him. Uh, they ticked all the boxes. And then at some stage, we, we hit quite a bad drought. Our country is quite prone to droughts. And, you know, some of these cycles will last up to seven years. And, um, a lot of the areas where, where we hunt cats, we've got, it's just very sandy. And, and the sand just doesn't want to hold scent very well. And what also happens is, you know, with a, especially your big cats like a lion, if you find a track and it's 10 hours old, 
have to work it because you can go search for another week and not find another track. You know, the, the home ranges are extremely, extremely big. Uh, so you can't be particularly picky and say, well, this track is not fresh enough. And um, what was happening is he ran into problems with the drought and realized that his dogs were having a very hard time on the really aged tracks. Um, um, he then made a conscious decision and he actually went and saw a few people and went and had a look at dogs and he imported um, some some Grand Gascon dogs. And he ran two lines. Uh, another one was the gangster line. The other one I can't even remember, to be quite honest. And what he then did is he started adding these dogs to to his current lines. And subsequently he started getting colder noses on these dogs. And, you know, the dogs could go there two or three hours older on the tracks. And then from there, um, he actually started to basically mix the different bloodlines to come up with what he he would call a, a really good all-purpose dog, something that could, could work the age tracks and that had enough stamina and not as, as heavy and cumbersome as, as the Gascons, you know, something that could put miles in and, um, and I still had. And what was important for Tienis was he needed dogs with heart. A lot of dogs will not work a lion. They might work leopard. But if they pick up a, a, a lion trail that starts getting fresh, it starts getting hot, they, they don't want to work it. So he was very, very adamant that his hounds needed to be brave. Um, you know, they, they shouldn't be fearful of, of lion. And subsequently, he selected his different lions and he ended up with, he used to call him his African blues, which was basically a mixture of, of some really good old school blue ticks. Mm -hmm. And um, some grand Gascon, and he even had some petite Gascon in there as well. And uh, he, standardized, he standardized these dogs to the point where the genome phenotype was, was pretty set. And, um, you know, these became his, his dogs of choice in terms of hunting, you know, moving on from there. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you had sent me that clip, what, and especially for you, blue tick enthusiast out there that's listening. Um, he got dogs for Mr. Va for Mr. Vaughn. He got J.J. Henneman's dogs. Um, he incorporated that into the the Gascon, and then he he actually tweaked it because he, they were too big and cumbersome, like what you said, and put the petite in. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating, Clinton, when you sent me that video, and it was showing he he was going through his dogs, and he had a dog named Buck which was a two-year-old dog that was he was going to start implementing into his breeding program that looked like Dale Cameron's old old dogs. And I know that Dale had picked dogs from, from both people mentioned just now, but the coloration was the same. Um, pumpkin seed over the eyes, the the dark rich and Dale used to call it velvet. They look like they they had velvet. Had the same coat and coloring, the same blaze up the nose into the eyes. Um, when I seen that dog, it was like, holy cow! You know, you're you you got you look. I mean, you could take that dog in in 
planet into Dale's dogs, and no one would know the difference. That's how much they looked alike. Um, and that was one of the things that I thought was amazing that, you know, here Tennis has taken this group of dogs and and mixed it up and, and produced a product that he um, wanted. And, you know, Dale had done the same thing over time, and they look the same. And, you, you're, I mean, you're thousands and thousands and thousands of miles apart, and those <laughs> two probably never spoke in their life. And they're producing the dogs yeah. that look exactly alike. I thought that was so uh, interesting to me. It, it actually must say quite a lot for form follows function, I would presume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. So – Let's just let's just real quick. We'll tap into a little bit of the. Tra- I mean, we could go on and on, and we haven't even gotten into the training side yet. Um, so just to kind of to back to reiterate, kind of why. So you and I both have worked pointier dogs. We understand what they do well, what they don't do well. Some of the some of the, um, and I don't want to say a fault, but most of the pointier dogs that we're running tracking. Um, now we have got away from that visual stimulation, but it's still there. It's still hard to work mm-hmm. them through some of that um, that overstimulation sometimes. And if they get overstimulated, you're all. You're, I mean, would you agree they're done? It's hard to get them it's back on finished, task. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't get them back from it. It's, it's yeah. done. Yeah. So the hound, um, and I'm a hound. Like I'm a hound guy. Like I'm. That's what you know, I live and breathe for. And I have stayed away from the bloodhounds in, in my career with me personally um, because of some of the things that, that we've just talked about. And I, one of my very first trainers, uh, his name was Bear Brooks. Um, Dave Brooks was one of my very first trainers. And I had just gotten dogs from Dale Cameron, which is the Blue Dogs. And when, when Bear seen my male dog, I called him Clyde. He told me, he's like, Heath, you need to put him on people. And I'm like, uh-uh. Like, I'm not taking that dog and put, I want to catch bear. Like, I don't want to catch people. Yeah. Um, but Dave, I mean, he stayed on me for months. And I'm probably, probably until he retired, he would always bring it up. Mm-hmm. You need to be using that dog. You need to be using that dog. Um, and I never did. But what I'm getting back to is that, you know, the hounds are what drives me, and I've had numerous people throughout my career say, you should be using these dogs in your trailing. And it's so hard. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this doesn't sound right, but it's so hard for me to take such a value, like the enjoyment that I have, and take it to to catch man, which then it's the same sense. There is no more... Um, emotions, feelings, satisfaction in catching somebody that's trying to evade you. And and a man okay. is the number one, like that, it doesn't get any higher than that. So maybe I need to rethink my process, but, um, but hounds are a unique animal. And for you to be able to take those, and because of the climate you're in, the trailing conditions, and put those to use um, is amazing that, you know, that you've, you're implementing that. Um, and I can see so many benefits from what you're doing. 
But I want to talk about the train in just a little bit um, before we before we we get off here. Like one of the things that you had talked about is um, when the dog when the dog starts to fail. I really want you to kind of go through that process, your feelings on it, and why a lot of times we are the um, the nemesis of that process. All right. Uh, initially, when I started trailing dogs, and it is something that, that I advocated to my students as well, you know, I would always say to to them, the dog must never fail. You know, we can make it harder and harder for him to be successful. You know, but failure should never be an option. You know, the dog needs to be successful. And, um, you know, if a dog did a good trail, let's say we had a bit of a surface change and, you know, the trail became a bit difficult and the dog lost it, you know, we would actually call the guy at the back, you know, that was running and, and just do a quick fire trap, you know, because the dog tried hard and he did a good job and we need to just, you know, pick him up a bit. And um, subsequently, you know, I have I have changed my view on that completely. Uh, I've done a I've done a, a complete 180 on that one. Uh, um, you know, we we telling the dogs, listen, if, if if you give up, we'll we'll change the parameters and make it easier for you. You know, so if you are having a hard time and you know it's becoming tough, you know, just let us know and you know we'll do a reset and we'll, we'll give you a quick one. Um, I believe that. As with people, I think hardships builds character. I have not come across people who have had extremely easy lives and found them to be very resilient when it comes to hardships. Um, and I think exactly the same happens. You know, if we look at, I don't think we can have a, a better understanding than nature itself if, if you have if you have a predator and it's hunting and it's been unsuccessful three or four times and it's now hungry and it's emaciated and it can't give up you know because giving up means death i mean it means the end of it so the the failures is is teaching the dog to be more creative that animal he needs to get closer he needs to take cognizance of his surroundings he needs to be patient um, and I find with, especially with the hounds, but with all dogs, I find that the moment we interfere, they start looking at us for guidance. So every time things become difficult, they look at us as if, listen, just give us a little bit of a hint, you know, uh, just a little bit of help. And the more you help, the more they expect it from you. And um, I believe if a dog has worked hard, and he suddenly, you know, picked up a different trail and he's investigated it and come back and he can't find his trail, just put him up. You know, tomorrow he's going to think about it. And, and you know, something that I never used to do, and I am doing it now, is, you know, Miguel, Miguel uh, Carbajal said to me that even if you have a high, high drive dog, like a pointy ear dog, you know, why don't you trail it on food? And, you know, after the food, you can still go back to the toy or the tug or whatever. And um, I said to my good, and I haven't got a problem with it. It just it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, he said to me, what happens if that dog is, becomes flat? 
close to the end of the trail. Let's say you've extended the trail and the dog has worked. It's used to doing a mile. Now the trail is one and a half miles. And somewhere beyond the mile, the dog becomes a bit flat. Um, now you put the dog up. Is that dog going to, you know, be spending the whole night thinking, damn, you know, I, was, I could have had my ball on my toe. But if he hasn't eaten, if he hasn't eaten, every hour that ticks away, his stomach is saying to him, listen, it wasn't so smart, you know, giving up or, or you know, trashing on that trail while you were on trail. And um, it's a primal thing. It's such a primal thing. And, and you can, you know, we all think, you know, my dog has got a hard drive. He's not very food driven. But don't feed him for four days. And you'll be surprised how food driven he becomes and how focused he becomes. And, um, you know, Miguel has got a beautiful way of, of, of expressing it. He says, you, you never withhold food from a dog. You give him the option to eat. If he, he chooses not to, then you make sure that you give him another opportunity the next day. The option is always there. Um, you make sure that it's within the dog's capability. You make sure in terms of distance and age and weather conditions that it's doable. Um, but, you know, the, the dog makes the conscious decision. And, you know, especially if it's a dog that basically gives up because it's starting to either get hot or tired or, you know, things are getting a bit difficult, then you have the option of saying to him, all right, let's try again tomorrow. And you put him away and tomorrow morning he comes out. And guess what? It's 12 or 24 hours later, he hasn't had a meal. And, you know, suddenly his priorities seem to align a little bit better. And he's more focused. And now when he gets there, you can make a big, a big scene of it. You could even feed him more than he would normally give. And you can go and put him up and skip a day. You know, just make it, let him realize how, how, that reward was at the end and um, you know it's the same thing as with, with the quality of the food you know his dogs are all on dry kibble but when they get to the end of the trail uh, it's literally a, a five-star buffet you know there's it's not just about how hungry I am it's, it's just you know there's something absolutely incredible at the end of this trail waiting for me and it's always that way and if the trail is harder and longer or aged, the buffet is even better. And um, he goes through painstaking time, mixing up different concoctions of hearts and livers and stuff to make sure he knows what actually has the, the highest motivational value for that specific dog. So it's very interesting. Um, I believe if a dog fails, uh, it might be our fault. So what? Uh, he can try again. But, you know, not 10 minutes later. I like to put the dog up, take him out, give him some time to think about it. And um, I think failure builds, it builds character. Um, I've, I've had dogs that fail, and when I go out the next day, it's, they, they just bring their A game. You can actually see that that dog is now really, he needs to get to the end of this trial. He's not just enjoying the trial. He's actually now compulsive on that trial. Is like just really gunning it. And um, it's got nothing to do with the fact that he's even skipped a meal. It's, it's just that um, he knows he has to try harder. Or, or sometimes what I find is if you've got dogs that are working fast and, um, you know, you have surface changes, they start making a lot of mistakes. And when you take them out the next day, you know, when they've done their, their circuits and they run into trouble and you put them up, when you take them out the next day, 
and and they hit the same surface, you have this light bulb, this light bulb moment, and you have this dog actually slow down, and now he is picking at that trail, and he suddenly makes it look easy. You know, he's now his mind is now working. You know, he's he's now focusing on on the problem in front of him, and he's now starting to pick away at it, and he gets through that area, and he goes off, and he gets paid. And you know, something that I think we forget is that the be it food, be it a kong, be it whatever, is only part of the reward. The amount of praise we lavish on the dog at the end of that trail is just as important, if not. Um, you know, Mick uh, speaks of the physical, of the emotional of a dog at the end of a trail. Now, he, when he gets there, and, you know, he starts eating. Uh, if it is, you know, he constantly goes to go. If it's a hound, that tail needs to be over it, over the dog's back. Um, he, he just lavishes on that hound to the point where, you know, that hound thinks this is just the best thing. It's not just your food. And, you know, one of the reasons he likes food is because, like he's how many people can you put it in? trail that's going to that's going to reward a biting dog properly very few people actually know how to especially if it's the dog is there for for the engagement and for the tug you know if he gets there and you know someone is a bit apprehensive for the dog and throws the tug at him or whatever it's, it's not going to have the same value um and this is why he likes food because obviously food all you have to do is open, uh, open the tupperware and then obviously when you get there as the handler you can start really telling this dog just how amazing it is and you know getting him to like really really you know enjoy that moment and you know you try and extend that moment as long as possible and it's all about your voice and your inputs and you know these are things that we forget about um you know we just the dog finds his food and the food is the reward you know the food should only be a portion of the reward um it's it's and i think this is why it's also important if we look at hounds um you know we should you know if the hounds don't eat what they what what they what they catch at the end it's not about them being fed it's it's about hunt so if we can get man dogs to enjoy the hunt as much as what the hunting dogs are, I think it becomes a full circle. You have dogs that become so true to trail that they aren't interested in anything else because the trail becomes self-satisfying and then whatever they get at the end is just a big added bonus. Yeah. I mean, you're taking – I'm a big proponent of food. I've talked about it numerous times on this podcast and – you're just taking one of the three things a dog needs to survive and, again, implement it into his training and implement it into his success in whatever task it is that you're asking that dog to perform. It's, it's primal. Yes. It, it's absolutely primal. It's hardwired within them. It's only because we allow them bowls full of food that they can eat at will that we start chipping away at that primal desire. And I have people telling me that, you know, I would like to do that, but my doesn't have any interest in food. Oh, yeah. But these are the same 
people that feed the dog twice a day and then when they train it's high value treats the high value treats is half a pound worth <laughs> and um you know when they send the dog to me all i do is i ask the dog to do something for food if he refuses we try again tomorrow Yep. And normally on day four, I have a dog that has healthy respect and desire for kibble. Yep. And life moves on and nobody's died. The dog might have lost two pounds in the process, but now the dog is, is focused. The dog is willing to give me something. I can start shaping behaviors and life is good. Everyone is happy. Yeah, no, that's exactly the same training philosophy, philosophy that I have, Clinton. And... I've probably taken up enough of your time today, but I would love to do a follow-up because we there was some more interesting stuff that you and I have talked about over the last week that I would love for the listeners to get an insight to. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add to, to wrap this up, anything that you'd like to say as far as um, about the hounds, about trailing, about training, anything in that aspect? Uh, I think the the good positive part is that I think there's enough knowledgeable people out there that are willing to share. And, you know, I think it takes a village to raise a working dog, you know, be it a biting dog, uh, a trailing dog, a hunting hound. I, I, I think it takes, you know, it takes quite a support structure to actually get these things going. And, you know, I think the more people that can network and can share information, the easier it becomes because we're all individuals. You know, I'm, I'm basically stuck here. There's no one that can assist me with things. But it doesn't mean that I don't have a support network. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that I can't, you know, pop a message to Jeff and, you know, ask him for advice. So I think the fact that the world has, has become, you know, so small and inter- intertwined, is, is a big plus. And I think the more people get interested in, in hounds in terms of man training, uh, I would like to, you know, say we even have man training lines for hounds where you actually have breeders producing dogs that are predisposed to hunting man. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but, um, you know, I think I think that would be you know, first prize if you actually have enough people. And and I'm so by the hounds, you know, much as I, I disliked my first hound interactions initially, um, you know, now having a bit more knowledge and having slightly different type of hounds, or very different type of hounds, um, I enjoy living with them. I enjoy co- co- inhabiting with them. I enjoy trailing with them you know everything about them is a lot of fun and um you know i can't see myself being without hounds again anytime soon just because you know the pleasure that they give me and and watching a watching a hound on trail to me is probably one of the the most beautiful things and um my, my next my next step I'm working towards is, you know, to get my hounds to actually open up on trail when they're hunting man, then I will be super excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've always wondered <clears throat> about, you know, for me, I, I want us to be quiet. Um, and I've, I've noticed what little bit I know about the hounds. 
Um, and it always kind of, I laugh, I chuckle about it when you see TV and you see them go chasing the, the prisoner that escaped and on TV shows. And then, mm-hmm. the, you know, the do- the bloodhounds are just baying and opening. And I'm like, I've never heard that. Like, I've never heard that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, but to me, it would just mean that I've actually gotten that dog to the point where he's now really excited. Uh, Things that are exciting. Yeah. You know, that to me means we mean we're doing something right. Um, but yeah, we'll see. It's always nice speaking to to like-minded people. And thank you so much for having me. And we've had previous conversations. It's always extremely interesting learning what you guys are doing. You know that side of the globe. And um, you know, just as everything is different, everything is also the same. We all have the same challenges, and you know, faced with the same adversities and Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always very, very interesting speaking to to other people, and you know, I, I look I actually look forward to you know listening to to some of of your other podcasts. Just in terms of hounds, you know, I'm not a I'm not a not a houndsman, so I'm learning, and I think it's a wealth of information. And I think the fact that you were willing to take your personal time while you still you know included full time and and putting it out there and sharing with other people is absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, like I said, it's a it's an honor to have you on, Clinton. Like I said, I'm I'm a I'm a life I I'm told I'm a lifelong learner, and anything that I can I've I've picked up tidbits from what our conversation was just this just now. Like there's stuff that I'm going to implement and try in my program. So that's what it's about is getting better. So with exactly. with each podcast, I end it with Clinton. Thank you for helping us teach, train, and learn. It was only a pleasure. Thank you for having me.